Let's pray as we uh, come uh, to God's word this evening. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is present here with us in this place. And we ask that you might just open our hearts, open up our minds right now to hear you clearly speak to us. Lord, and I pray that your spirit might also be at work within our lives, that you might shape us and make us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the, the very well-known story of Jesus uh, healing the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. And in the story, you know, Jesus, um, he's in a, he's in a house. The house is so jam-packed with people that a group of mates, they can't get their sick friend to Jesus. And so, you know, they dig a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down so that Jesus can heal him. But as the man is lowered down, Jesus does something that no one expects. Because instead of healing the man immediately, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And you know, this really upsets the, the religious leaders that are present because in Jesus' offer of forgiveness, Jesus is essentially saying, I am God, and they cannot accept that. But Jesus, sensing what they are thinking, he then says these words, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turns to the paralyzed man and he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus heals the man to show that his words are true. He really does have the authority, not just to heal, but he really does the have the authority to forgive sin. His, his words line up with his actions. Jesus really is the real deal. And I think a similar thing is happening in Matthew's gospel. If you remember a few months ago, uh, we worked through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us clear teaching. He teaches clearly to his disciples. And at times, he calls them to things that are challenging and very difficult. But I think the lingering questions for his disciples as they were walking down the mountain at the end of that sermon is, is Jesus really the real deal? I mean, can we really trust in the words of Jesus? And to what degree does Jesus' authority, to what degree is Jesus' words, what degree do they have authority over our lives? To what level, to what point? And then the most important question of all, is Jesus, therefore, is he worth following? You know, these are all really important questions to be asked. You know, whenever a parent tells a child, you know, don't touch that, it's hot. Or a driving instructor says, you know, don't forget to check your mirrors in your car. Or a police officer says, stop, show me your ID. You know, we give permission all the time for certain people's words to have sway and authority in our lives. We expect it to happen, and we expect to respond obediently. We listen to them because we assume that they know what they're talking about. They have the experience. They have the knowledge. They have the authority to guide us, and so we submit ourselves to their words. But the difference with Jesus is he claims to have sway and authority 
and clarity over every area of our lives. He claims to not only know the way, but he claims to be the way to life. And as he says at the end of chapter 7, building our lives on his word is not only wise, but it is safe. And ignoring his words leads to ruin and disaster. You know, these are very bold claims. And how can we, this evening, how can we have confidence that Jesus' words are true? Words that were spoken 2,000 years ago, how can we be sure that his words are true? That his ways are not just best, but his ways are always best. And how can we be certain that Jesus really is worth following? And whenever you think about the context of our, our ordination and induction this evening, how can Anthony and Anne this evening, how can they know that their step up and their commitment to follow Jesus, how can they know that's a good thing? How can they know that's a right thing? How can they know that it's worth it? That's what we're going to be looking at this term. You know, over the next few weeks, the next few chapters that follow in Matt's gospel are, are the equivalent to Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man. They are Matthew's way of saying that Jesus really is the real deal. His words really do have ultimate authority over our lives. He really is worth following. At times we'll be tempted to think that Jesus makes no sense, that his ways seem a bit counterintuitive, a bit countercultural, but Matthew wants us to realize that Jesus really does know what he's talking about. And we can see that clearly this evening in Matthew 8. You know, Jesus comes down the mountain, large crowds are following him. You can imagine, you know, their ears have been burning because of what Jesus has been saying. I mean, is Jesus just all talk? And look at the immediacy of verse 2. It says, right away, a man with leprosy came and kneels before Jesus, saying, Lord, if you were willing, you can make me clean. It happens right away. He's challenged right away. And Jesus, reaching out his hand, Jesus touches him and says, I am willing, be made clean. And again, look what happens. It happens immediately. Immediately, his leprosy is cleansed. In leprosy, it was a, a debilitating disease that, that wreaked havoc in the first century. This man was ceremonially unclean. His disease was seen to be contagious. He was immersed in shame. He was ostracized from the community. No one would ever touch him, especially not anyone who was in any way seen to be religious. I mean, Jesus could have simply just said, be clean. But instead, Jesus lovingly and intentionally, he reaches out and he touches him. And in a moment, the leprosy is gone. And not just the leprosy is gone, but the, the shame is gone. The stigma is erased. And now this man can now become part of the community again. In verse 4, Jesus tells the man not to tell anyone, but instead to go and show himself to the priest and offer the sacrifice required to show that he has been healed. And to do that also as a testimony 
to the religious leaders. And in doing this, Jesus is showing that he's not standing in opposition to the Old Testament, but rather he's showing himself standing in the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's also pointing the religious leaders to the validity of his words and his mission. This man's healing testifies to the already hostile leaders that Jesus really is the real deal. He really is God's promised king. He really is God's promised Messiah. And he really is worth following. And you know, this pattern of Jesus' healing, coupled together with Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment, in order to confirm his identity as the Son of God and therefore cement his claim as the ultimate foundation for our lives, it's repeated in the next two stories. In verse 5, you know, Jesus enters to Capernaum, there's a Roman soldier there, and he comes to Jesus pleading for help. He says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. And once again, this exchange should not be happening. The Roman centurion is an enemy of the people. It's, it's more like he's a mercenary. He's come in from Lebanon. He's come in from Syria. And according to the Jews, he is someone excluded. He is someone beyond God's reach. He's also someone who is unclean. Now, he's a bit, probably a bit like uh, a commander in the Wagner group, you know, in Ukraine. You know, he's living in occupied territory. He therefore has the power to extract whatever information he wanted, whatever he wanted. He didn't have to ask for anything. But we find him pleading. We find him begging Jesus for help. And again, who is he asking help for? It's not for his wife. It's not for a member of his family. It's for his servant. It's for his slave. This is a compassionate man. And notice also that he addresses Jesus as Lord. But unlike the leper, he doesn't directly ask Jesus for anything. So Jesus clarifies by asking him, you know, am I to come and to heal him? In verses 8 and 9, we get an insight into the attitude and the, and the posture of the centurion. Notice how he again dresses Jesus as Lord, you know, for a second time. He acknowledges his own sense of unworthiness before Jesus, whose authority he recognizes as being far greater than his own. And he trusts that Jesus can heal his servant from a distance simply by saying a word. The centurion then says that his confidence in Jesus being able to do all of that is based upon the fact that he knows himself what it means as a centurion to be, uh, you know, to be, you know, to be you know, leading a hundred men what it means to have authority. He understands power. He understands the authority of words. And then we, we've seen that very often you know, in movies. You know, in the movie, you know, the, the heroes from the movie, they're in a car and they're driving up to a place, you know, that's, that's restricted. It's a restricted area. And they get there and there's all these guardmen dressed in uniforms and they stop them. And whenever they stop them, the window goes down and they say, you can't be here. You're not allowed to go through. And then someone pipes up and says, do you not recognize me? And, you know, he, you know, produces his general ID card or something. And they go, oh, I'm so... And all of a sudden, the mood changes. You know, the guard kind of, way, kind of way also comes to attention. 
and he suddenly opens the gate and they get access into the area 51 or wherever it might be. That's the kind of authority that this centurion recognizes in Jesus. Therefore, you know, in verse 10 we read, you know, Jesus is amazed. That word amazed, it's a very strong word. It's only used here and also in, in Mark chapter 6 whenever Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of, of the people. Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith, which he states outshines the faith of anyone in Israel, any religious leader, any disciple, anyone in the crowd. And this so-called pagan, Jesus says, is a model of faith to the whole nation. And notice again how Jesus appealed to the Old Testament to back up his words. He says, I tell you that many will come from the east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This banquet that Jesus is talking about, it's referring from the prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 25 of Isaiah 25. There, you know, the Lord of hosts, he's going to spread out a lavish banquet. There's going to be the food of kings. It's going to be held on God's holy mountain with guests will include people from all nations, from all different peoples. Death will be at an end. Tears will be wiped away. And it will be a glorious day of salvation. But for 700 years, the Jewish religious establishment, they did its best to try and downplay the words of Isaiah. They said there is going to be a feast. And yes, all the nations, that's all of us, are going to be called to this great feast. And they're all going to come and sit around the table. And then suddenly, God is just going to destroy them all. This, Jesus' words would have sounded so shocking. But shockingly, therefore, Jesus says, it's believers just like this centurion who will have the best seats at the party next to the heroes and the founders of the faith, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, this would have even sounded even more shocking for the average Jew, you know, who, who just would never even eat with a non-Jew who they saw as being unclean. And worse still, Jesus in describing the nations coming, he uses the word coming from the east and from the west. And they were words that were used in the Old Testament talking about the ingathering of, the, of, of Jews from around the world. But it's to these unbelieving Jews, these, you know, sons of the kingdom, who, you know, you know those who should know God, those who should know Jesus better, those who respect, res reject Jesus' authority, those who reject his words, well, they're the ones who are going to find themselves in deep water. And we read, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. They'll be thrown into hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, no wonder the religious leaders hate Jesus so much. They thought for hundreds of years that they're the ones that had it right. They thought that their own righteousness can I somehow qualify them for heaven, their own Jewish blood, their Jewish race, somehow just qualified them for heaven to sit at the table. And Jesus uses prophetic words that they were so familiar with to show them that their rejection of his words is a sign that they aren't even part of the party. Now, Jesus isn't messing around. 
And then in verse 13, Jesus speaks directly again to the centurion. He says, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very moment. You know, the healing word go is given, the word that the centurion himself asked for, and the healing is immediate. You know, Jesus' validation, Jesus' acknowledgement of the faith of the centurion, the healing of the servant with a single word, all backed up by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, it testifies to the fact that Jesus really is the real deal. He really is God's promised king. He really is the Messiah and is worth listening to and he's worth following no matter what the cost is. The story, you know, from, from verse 14, uh, Jesus healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law, it just, it cements what we've been, that pattern that we've been talking about already. Jesus goes to his um, disciples, you know, Peter's house, his mother-in-law is sick, she has a fever. You know, a fever may not seem like a big deal, but in Jesus' day, people would often die from, from having a fever. And this time, Jesus simply touches her. And she's healed. And she immediately, she gets up and she begins to serve Jesus. And in the evening, you know, many people, they then turn up. They're possessed by evil spirits. But Jesus then drives out the evil spirits. And he does it again just with a word. And then heals all who are sick. And once again, we have the testimony from the Old Testament this time, you know, from, the, the, from Isaiah 53, you know, the prophecy, you know, being fulfilled and detailing the coming of God's suffering servant. You know, Matthew wants to make it clear that Jesus really is the real deal. His words can be trusted. He really does have the, the words of life. His authority is unquestioned. He is worth following. He is worth serving. But a for all of us that are here this evening, it therefore begs the question for us this evening, do we recognize who Jesus is? And if we recognize who Jesus is, are we listening? I mean, are we attentive to the words of Jesus? Are his words just a bit, uh, uh, a bit boring? You know, are, are they irrelevant? Are they just words to you? Or are Jesus' words, are they life to you? And if this evening you say, well, Sam, yes, I believe all of that, then I want to ask you this evening, how are you being attentive to the word of God every moment of every day? How are you being attentive this evening? You know, sitting here this evening, how many of us are just flicking through our phones, looking at Facebook, going shopping while we're in church? clicking on likes on Instagram. How many of us, you know, this evening, are just, we're, we're sitting here and, you know, we're thinking about what's for dinner. Oh, what's for dinner tonight? I hope it's Japanese curry. I mean, how many of us are actually at home right now watching TV in our heads? I said this morning, I wish I could have like a big screen here in the back, plug everybody's head into the screen so we could watch what you're all thinking about while we're actually preaching this evening. I know, David, yes. I think it would make a pretty good Netflix series, just to kind of go to churches and just watch on a screen 
what we're actually engaged with and thinking about when we're actually engaging with the Word of God. I mean, are we attentive, not just here in this place, but during the week? How are we being attentive to God, to the words of Jesus in our lives? Are Jesus' words, are they the final authority in your life? Or do you have the attitude that you decide for yourself you pick and choose the words of Jesus when it suits you at certain times. And do we realize that we ignore the words of Jesus at our peril? That our attitude to Jesus' words and our willingness or, or our unwillingness to follow through and obeying it, it reveals something of where we are with our relationship to Jesus, if we're here this morning and our hearts are this evening and we're doing a great big yawn in our hearts towards Jesus, that is reflective of our relationship to Jesus. And it's only when we're listening to Jesus, it's only whenever we're following through with his words, the last few verses of the chapter make sense. In verse 18, Jesus decides to escape the crowds uh, and so a scribe, you know, comes and approaches Jesus. And, and ironically, this is someone who is familiar with the Word of God. He would call himself an expert in the Word of God. He's a member of the most learned in ancient Israel. He's diligent in studying the Scriptures. He served as a copyist, as, a, as an editor, as a teacher, and he's even sometimes serving as a juror. And notice also how his offer, it's completely unsolicited. Jesus doesn't say follow. He comes and offers himself to Jesus. He's the one who approaches Jesus. And like the rich young ruler, and like the centurion, he calls Jesus teacher. He calls him rabbi. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, you know, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus calls himself the son of man for the first time in Matthew. Jesus is the glorious son of man of Daniel chapter 7. He is the king of an everlasting kingdom, but he is a king without a home on earth. He is a king who is homeless. So Jesus is saying, you know, following my words, is more important than earthly comfort and security. I haven't come to bore deep into this world, not when there is so much at stake eternally. And notice the response. What is the response of the scribe? Well, there isn't one. The scribe, it seems, he, he fails to recognize who it is that's speaking to him. Therefore, Jesus' words carry no weight. He just disappears. Doesn't respond at all. A second person, you know, approaches Jesus and he says, you know, Lord, first let me go bury my father. This time it's someone who claims, you know, to be a disciple of Jesus. He even gets the title right. He calls Jesus Lord. You know, burying a parent is one of the most significant thing that a person can do in their whole life. And in Jesus' day, it was the duty of any son, it was an obligation to bury their father. But it's also been suggested that the, the father was not yet dead, and so the man is asking to say, look, can I go back and can I look after my dad until he dies? 
But then Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me and let those who are only interested in the earth put their own people into the earth. You know, Jesus' words, they sound pretty harsh, don't they? They sound pretty hard. But again, there's no response. The man is just gone. And we presume that, well, there you go, Jesus has lost another follower. But Jesus is using, he's using hyperbole. He's overemphasizing in order to make his point. Jesus is saying, you know, that, that following through on his words, it takes precedence over even our most committed obligations like family. It's like a Japanese friend of mine who, who came to me and said, Sam, look, I need to make a choice. I can either be a, a Chudahampa Christian, or I'm just looking at Rosen and saying that, I can either be a Chudahampa Christian or I can be a Chantono Christian. He says, I'm the eldest son. I've got a, 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 a Buddhist altar in my house. I can be Chudahampa. I can be a halfway Christian. I can keep the altar in my house. I can pretend to do all the Buddhist rituals and pretend to do all the prayers that's required of me as the eldest son. Or I can be a proper Christian and actually hand the altar to my youngest brother. But if I do that, all hell is going to break loose in my family. My friend told me, he said, Sam, I don't want to be a Chudahampa Christian. I don't want to be just a, a halfway Christian. I know who Jesus is. I know what he's done for me. I know the call on my life. And so he gave the Buddhist altar to his youngest brother and all hell broke loose. But in the midst of all of that, you know, one of his aunties, she approached him and she told him that she had been a, a secret Christian and that, that his courage encouraged her to step out in her faith. And it took some time, but he then showed his family that he was a better son. He was a better brother because of Jesus. Last year, I was um, back in Ireland, um, and my mom said to me, she said, you know, son, you've been living overseas since you were 20 years old. I've only had you for 20 years of your life, and I miss you every day. You know, my mother's a Christian. My mom, she understands the choices that I've made in my life as being a follower of Jesus. She understands all of that, but it still hurts. It hurts me. It hurts my mom. It hurts my, my three sisters. You know, following Jesus' words will sometimes hurt. Following Jesus' words means we won't always have the same comforts and security that other people have. But we will only follow through on the words of Jesus if we recognize who Jesus is, if we recognize that he is the real deal and his words are life. Jesus is God's promised king. Jesus is the son of man. He is the one who has come to die for us, to save us from our sins. He is God. He is the author of life. His words are the words of eternal life. He is the one who promises, says, come to me and I will give you fullness of life. If you want to have fullness of life, come to me and I will give it to you. 
But we'll never understand any of that if we reject or we turn away or we ignore or we downplay or we just pick and choose whatever parts of Jesus and whatever parts of his words that we want to follow. The only way that we can experience all that Jesus has for us is by following through on his words, following through on what he's asking us and how he's asking us to live. You know, confronting the things that make us feel uncomfortable. It means facing the hurt. It means knowing that Jesus really is the real deal, that he's worth following, that he's worth serving with all of our lives, that he really is worth it. As the Apostle Paul testifies, you know, in Corinthians, he says this, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just we pray for us this evening. We ask you that you may help us to hear your voice and not just hear it, but help us to trust in your voice. Help us to trust in your word. Help us, Lord God, to put, just to, to seek to follow you, Lord, to put your words into action in our lives. Please help us to be attentive. And Lord, please show us that your words are life. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for times when we just poo-hoo your word or we, or we just put it aside and we, we push it aside and, and we make our way, Lord, authority. We, we base our lives on our own words and our own ways instead of your words and your ways. So Father, please, Lord, as we open up Matthew's gospel over these next few weeks, Lord, we will be challenged. Lord, we'll be confronted. Lord, a lot of the values, a lot of the ideas that we have will be challenged, Lord, about what is life, what does life look like, and what does it look like to follow you. So, Lord, please be, give us courage to hear your word, and please give us courage to follow you, we pray, with everything that we have, knowing that you are God, knowing that you love us, knowing that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life knowing that the only way to the Father is through you. And Lord God, I pray that as we come to you, Lord, I pray that you all just deepen our trust in you, Lord God, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name.